Good morning, church. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what magnificent stones, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming, I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumours of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter. Because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. 
You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Thanks for reading, Gary. Well, I reckon there's uh, two sorts of people in the world, uh, those who know who Anthony Green is and those who don't. If you're not into politics, I reckon you've got no idea who Anthony Green is, but if you're one of those people who love watching and thinking about politics, then you probably look forward to those election night TV coverages, and if that's the case, you'll know Anthony Green very well. I've got a photo of him up on the slide, up on the screen behind me. Uh, You probably know Anthony Green well. As I get older, I become a little bit more interested in politics, but to be honest, I've never watched more than 9.30 at night on an election night coverage. I just can't get any further, as good as Anthony Green is. Well, let me just add my welcome again. My name's Carl, if you missed it before. I'm the senior pastor here at Trinity Church Unley. We, as a church, have been working through Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. Uh, We've got to the end of uh, chapter 4, and I thought I'd hit pause on that, because the next couple of chapters look pretty difficult, if I'm honest. Uh, And I thought, well, we'll go back to Mark. That'll be a little bit easier for the next few weeks. And I got to where we're up to, and we find that we land in chapter 13. Commentators call this the hardest section in Mark's Gospel. It's hard, isn't it? Because there's a lot of imagery going on here and a lot of ideas that sound, look and sound like they're stacked together. It's hard because the language is a little bit unfamiliar. I mentioned Anthony Green earlier because I think this passage is all about regime change. Regimes, if we call them that, they can change peacefully. In fact, in our city and in our country, that seems to almost always be the case. Most of us will sit on an election night watching Anthony Green do his thing on the TV and we may not be particularly happy with what he's saying, but what we can be pretty sure of is that violence and uprising are not likely to follow. Regime changes happen in Australia without so much as a pitchfork being raised in anger But historically and throughout the rest of the world, that's not always the case, is it? Today, as we look at Mark chapter 13, I want you to see regime change on view. It's difficult, the language in this passage is hard, the the ideas seem to be a bit blended together and stacked on top of each other. And so as we get into this chapter, let me kind of summarise for you what I think this passage is about. I think this passage predicts the greatest regime change that's ever happened. It's a regime change that's so big it actually marks the start of the end of this world. With this regime change, I want you to see that the temple is out. And the religious leaders of Jesus' time, well, they're also out. That old order of things is being done away with and a new era is about to start. In this new era, in this new regime, Jesus is the way in which God is known. 
in this new regime or this new era, we see God's king taking his rightful place as God's agent in the world. This is the start of God putting all things right. Ultimately, this is the start of the regime change which will see God judging the whole world and remaking the heavens and the earth. In chapter 13, I think we see that judgment starting with the temple. And if you've been with us over the course of this year, you might remember back to when we last looked at Mark, we worked through chapter 12. And back in chapter 12, the religious leaders had been trying to trap Jesus. Do you remember that? They've been asking him questions about baptism and about taxation and about marriage. And Jesus had spoken out about these religious leaders. Remember, he told that parable about the tenants at the start of chapter 12. And as we got towards the end of chapter 12, we began to see with clarity the the hypocrisy and the self-serving nature of the religious leaders at the time. Do you remember our, our very own Jason Lim taking us through that last section of chapter 12 where we, where we saw the religious leaders treating the poor widow terribly? They should have been taking care of her. That was their duty. And yet she was the one who was giving out of her poverty. And Mark chapter 13 starts with Jesus then leaving that temple area. And I think Mark, our author of this passage, Mark wants us to know that Jesus is done with the temple and done with its leaders and he's not going back. It's time for the regime change to start. Okay, that's the background. I hope that's helpful. With that background in mind, I'd love you to turn to Mark chapter 13, if you haven't already done so. And I'm going to reread to you verses 1 to 2. This is what it says, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, Jesus replied, not one stone here will be left on another, every one will be thrown down. Okay, don't forget the context of this passage, Mark chapter 12, Jesus has been challenged by the religious leaders and he's won those arguments. He's clearly pointed out their hypocrisy and their failure as leaders and now he speaks about the destruction of the temple and I assume that he's also kind of here speaking about the religious system, the destruction of that religious system and all that was associated with that. Now the historical accounts tell us that the temple that Jesus is talking about here really was a magnificent building. Indeed there's a Jewish proverb that reads something like this, he who has not seen the temple of Herod has never seen a beautiful building in his life. Apparently, the temple gleamed white. I've got a photo um, up on the screen here, if Charlie can find it, of a model of the temple, right? This is, doesn't exist anymore, so this is a model showing what it looks like. Can you see the size of the temple in comparison to the other buildings around in Jerusalem? I wonder if you travel to go and see the big things, you know what I mean by that? Like maybe you've been to see the big banana in Coffs Harbour, or maybe you've seen the big prawn in Ballina, or the big pineapple in Mumbai. There are big things all over our country, aren't there? Some of them are just truly horrific. I've got a photo on the screen of the big potato in Robertson. That is horrible, isn't it? And in Berry, there's a big orange. Let me give you a tip. If you've never been to Berry, don't go there to see the big orange. It's really not worth it. If you travel to see big things, 
a couple of thousand years ago, you might have gone to see the temple. See, the disciples comment on the size of the stone blocks that are, that are used to build this temple. A man called Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, he wrote um, in the 1890s, so um, around the time of Jesus, he records in one of his books the size of the blocks of stones that were used to build the temple. He talks about it in cubits, the old measurement. We did the maths in the office this week. The blocks of stone that went into building the temple were something like 11 metres long and 3.6 metres high, and, and 4 or 5 metres deep. 11 metres is the size of this width of the room. That was one of the blocks of stone. Each block of stone was like a metro bus, that's how big they were. The temple was huge, and it was white, and they say it was glorious. Others say it looked like a snow-capped mountain in the distance, made with blocks of stone the size of a bus. And Jesus says to his disciples, Time is coming when not one stone will be left standing on another. He's predicting, isn't he, and foretelling the temple's total and complete destruction. And with that, I want to suggest that it's also the end of the religious system that the temple stood for. The start of the regime change. The start of the end of the world. In verses 3 and 4, Jesus and his disciples, they've now moved outside the temple and they're up in the Mount of Olives. It's likely that the temple's still on view. I've got a, a picture from a modern day. This is like modern day times, looking from the Mount of Olives, out over at the temple area. Today, the temple isn't there. You can see instead the Dome of the Rock, the Islamic shrine that sits where the temple was. And as they're looking out from the Garden of Olives, the Mount of Olives, Mark tells us that Peter, James, John and Andrew asked Jesus two questions. When? When will this stuff happen? And what? What will the signs be? If you've got your leaflet with you today, you'll see those two questions there listed in your leaflet. And we'll be working our way through that over the next uh, few minutes. I think that in verses 5 through to 27, Jesus is primarily talking about the signs. If you've got your leaflet there, you'll see three signs that I've listed here. Birth pains, the destruction of Jerusalem and the Son of Man coming in clouds. And in verses 28 to 37, I think we see Jesus' answer to the when question. But I want to start this morning by going through the signs with you. And it's here that things get tricky. Tricky because the end of the world's no small thing. Tricky because there are a number of signs in this passage and there's ambiguity, I think, as to which sign refers to which. There's ambiguity because the commentators are divided about what the signs mean. And so here's my take on things. I'm happy to talk with you after if you want to push back on some of these ideas. But here, I want to suggest to you that the end of the world will happen with at least three major milestones, at least three. I want to suggest to you that this regime change that is the end of the world has at least three steps to it. And those steps or those parts include the death, the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. I want to call that part one for you. The destruction of the temple and the destruction of the religious system that's associated with that, I want to call that part two. And the return of Jesus when the whole world will be judged and everything will be put right, I want to call that part three. And I'll suggest to you this morning that the signs that we read here are associated with these 
three parts of the regime change, but it's like each sign has been drawn onto a transparent piece of film and then layered on top of each other. So in Mark 13, I don't think it's always very easy for us to see what sign refers to what bit of the regime change. That's some of the complication in this passage and why it's harder to read. In verses 5 to 8, Jesus speaks of a not yet sign. That's the first one I want you to see. In other words, he says, when you see wars and famines and other calamities, he says, that's not the end. Let me read it to you. Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nations will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, Jesus says to his disciples, don't be alarmed because the end is still to come. I think what Jesus is kind of saying here is that we should expect these things in a broken and fallen world. Likewise, earthquakes and famines, these don't indicate that the end is imminent, but rather that the end is beginning. And so at one sense, you could almost see these things as as non-signs. These are, are the signs that we live in a broken world. They're not signs that the world's end is imminent. It's almost like Jesus is telling his disciples here not to get preoccupied with looking for these sorts of signs. Instead of being on the lookout for those sorts of things, they should be on the lookout for persecution. Instead of being worried about natural disasters and and, and getting confused with those things, they would spend their time witnessing before governors and kings. Because, Jesus says, before the world's end, the gospel must first be preached to all nations. You see there, look at verse 10 with me. This is what it says. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to a trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Here's some information then for his disciples, isn't it? Wars and famines, they are not signs that the end is imminent, but the preaching of the gospel, that is a sign for it must be first preached to all the nations. And as they do that, as they do that work of preaching and proclaiming the gospel, it seems that some of them will be arrested and tried. Gospel proclamation and persecution seems to be a sign that we are in the last times. Okay, moving on. Verses 14 to 23, I think the signs in these verses point towards the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem. Now, there's language here that comes from the book of Daniel. Jesus warns his disciples that a dreadful time is coming. And his intention, I think, here is to warn the disciples so that they will not be caught off guard by the fall of Jerusalem. Remember, back at the start of the chapter, Jesus spoke about the destruction of the temple. And here we see, I think, a bit of a prediction about what it's going to be like. It's going to be horrible. Remember in this passage here, Jesus is speaking to Peter and James and John and Andrew. They're on the Mount of Olives. They're looking out over Jerusalem, over the temple. The temple would have been in their view, gleaming and white. And Jesus says to them, it's all going to be destroyed. 
Now, today, we know that the Roman army destroyed Judea and Jerusalem in about the year AD 70, maybe 40 years after Jesus was making this prediction. And we know it was a terrible time for those who were left in Jerusalem. One commentator I read said that there were no trees left in this region because the Romans had cut them down and turned them into crucifixion poles. So many people were killed. The Jewish historian Josephus, who I mentioned before, he writes about the destruction of Jerusalem and the horrors of that war. Jerusalem was a walled city. The walls keep the enemy out, but eventually you run out of food. And this is Josephus telling us what happened. Listen how closely it aligns with what Jesus has written in this, Jesus spoke, as Mark records it in this passage. This is what Josephus says. Throughout the city, people were dying of hunger in large numbers and enduring unspeakable sufferings. In every house, the merest hint of food sparked violence and close relatives fell to blows, snatching from one another the pitiful supports of life. No respect was paid even to the dying. The ruffians searched them in case they were concealing food somewhere in their clothes or just pretending to be near death. Gaping with hunger like mad dogs, lawless gangs went staggering and reeling through the streets, bashing on the doors like drunkards and so bewildered that they broke into the same house two or three times in an hour. Need drove the starving to gnaw at anything. Refuse, which even animals would reject was collected and turned into food in the end they were eating belts and shoes and the leather stripped off their shields tufts of withered grass were devoured and sold in little bundles for four drachmas it was a terrible time and eventually jerusalem fell and the temple was destroyed and not one stone was left on another here's a bit of a stone that was found in the 1960s I think this is a bit of the temple, just a small portion of a stone. There's a little bit of a, an inscription on that that says something like the trumpeting place. And, and the next slide kind of shows you where that might have been on the temple, kind of a little bit at the top of the temple, something like that. I've, I've not been to Jerusalem. Some of you may have been there. You may have seen uh, this area that the photos I've got here. I've been to Rome and I've stood in the forum and I've looked up at Titus's arch. It was thought to be built in about AD 80. I've got a photo of that on the screen as well. There it is. And I've seen uh, the carving of stone inside that arch which show the triumphal procession of Roman soldiers proudly parading their spoils from Jerusalem. You can see that here. Can you see the golden menorah from the temple as they carted it out? And here's what a modern day Jewish historian says, Titus, the man that this arch honours, led the Roman siege of Jerusalem in 68 to 70 AD that culminated in the destruction of the temple, the enslavement and murder of hundreds of thousands of Jews. Now today we look back on this event as just one of those events that happened in history that, like so many others, was associated with a huge loss of life. But what I want you to see here today is a regime change. The temple is gone. In verses 24 to 27, Jesus speaks about another sign, and, and commentators are again divided as to what this sign relates to. That it might be the return of Jesus. It might be his death, or it might be a poetic way of depicting the change in a regime. 
I'm not really sure. You might like to have a look at the verses 24 to 27 and see what you think. To me, this looks and reads a lot like the second coming of Jesus. So in 1 Thessalonians, clearly about the second coming of Jesus in chapter 4, we read about Jesus returning on the clouds. But certainly Jesus' ascension also includes clouds and possibly Jesus coming in clouds then is a referent to his glory and his majesty and his oneness with the Father rather than a particular event in history. Some of the commentators argue that this is associated with his death and his resurrection and his ascension that these things are about to happen. And that makes sense of verse 30 a bit, doesn't it? Which says, truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. It's not always easy to work out exactly what's going on in this passage. But let me summarise what we've seen so far. Mark chapter 12 was all about the religious hypocrisy and the failed leadership of Israel. In chapter 13, Jesus seems to be pronouncing an end to that era and the destruction of the temple. And in its new place, a new era has started. And that era is all about the person of Jesus. He's the new way to God. But for all this end of the world stuff to happen, several things need to happen first. Jesus needs to be killed. And he will be crucified on the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the first bit of the change in the era. And then Jerusalem will fall and with it the temple will be destroyed. And finally, Jesus will return. Now, we live in a time today, don't we, where two of those three things have already happened. The end has well and truly started. In verses 28 to 37, Jesus starts to address, I think, the second part of the disciples' question, the the when question. When will these things happen? And just like with the signs, Jesus is not super clear here, at least not super clear for us as modern day readers. I'd have loved for Jesus just to have said something like, this is going to happen on Tuesday morning, 11.15, April 27, 2045, or something like that. That'd be really easy for us to understand, wouldn't it? Instead, he starts talking about a fig tree. Verse 28, now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happen, you will know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. In other words, Jesus seems to be saying to his disciples, look around you, the change has already started. And indeed, three times in Mark's Gospel so far, in chapter 8, verse 31, and 9, verse 31, and 10, almost verse 31, Jesus has told his disciples that, he will be crucified and that he will rise from the dead. They should have been able to read the signs around them and know that these things were coming soon. Remember, Jesus here is on the Mount of Olives looking over the temple grounds, probably late in the day on Wednesday. By Friday, he will be crucified. The fig tree is budded. Today, we live after Jesus' crucifixion. We live after the fall of Jerusalem, but we live before his second coming. And many of us might be wondering, when will this happen? When is Jesus going to return? In verse 32, I think Jesus is speaking about his return. Second time when he says this, but about that day, that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Maybe a year or so ago, I had a really well-meaning man greet me here at church one Sunday morning. 
and he wanted to talk to me urgently because he'd seen in the stars and in some other signs around him that destruction was coming our way. He wanted me to take you far up into the Adelaide Hills and to hide up there while Adelaide was destroyed. He was earnest and he was really concerned and he was sure it was going to happen in the next few days or the next few weeks. And as he spoke to me, my mind went to this passage. No one knows the day or the hour except the Father. No one knows. So if we don't know, what then are we supposed to do? It could be tomorrow that Jesus returns. It might be next month. It may not be in our lifetimes. So what are we to do? Should we run to the hills? I mean, who's with me if we were to do that, right? No, Jesus says we are to be alert and on our guard. And Jesus goes on to tell the parable that Bonnie shared with us in the kids' talk this morning. Jesus tells a parable about a man who goes away and leaves his house entrusted to his servants. It seems as though each servant was assigned a task. I assume one was tasked with feeding the chooks and one was tasked with looking after the dog, another given the task of mowing the lawns. One of those servants was told to keep watch. Jesus goes on to say, therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the master will return. Now, does this parable mean that we should be keeping watch? Should we have our eyes kind of fixed to binoculars? Is the role of the church to be the first to spot Jesus? Is that our job? To see him before others do? I don't think so. See, in the parable, the servant was told to be on the watch. And because he was told to be on the watch, he was supposed to be watching while Jesus was away, or the master was away, so that the master would find him doing that when he returned. I reckon we can all kind of relate to this parable. My my kids are are just getting to the age where they're allowed to stay home without Meredith or I being there. If you're a parent and you're not quite at that stage, don't sweat, the time's coming, and it is good when it comes. But... Although we're at the stage where we can do that, I'm still a little bit concerned because I can remember what it was like when I was a kid, back when my parents left me home. Back then I might have been given an instruction, do your homework or do your piano practice or vacuum the lounge. But the instructions didn't matter so much because what really mattered is that as soon as the car left the driveway, ah, it was time to relax. TV went on, just chill out. But you had to be careful, didn't you? You all know what this is like. You've all been there. You had to be careful because if mum's car came into the driveway and you hadn't done the jobs, trouble would start. You had to be on your alert. You had to be listening. Maybe you were listening for the sound of the car coming up the street, ready to jump up and switch the TV off and get on with the vacuuming. I think this is kind of the situation that Jesus is talking about, isn't it? He's going, but he's coming back. And while he's not with us, he's left us with tasks to do. And because we don't know when he's going to come back, because we can't hear Jesus' car coming up the driveway, so to speak, we should be working on those tasks. And I don't think the task is necessarily just watching. I think that's too literal interpretation of the parable. Rather, I think we're supposed to be doing those things that please Jesus. wonder what you think those things are. From the passage, we get a very specific insight into the example set for the disciples. Their task was to proclaim the gospel and to bear up under the persecution that was coming, to ensure that the gospel went out to all nations. I assume that our task is not all that dissimilar. While we wait for Jesus to return, 
we should be living, shouldn't we, in a way that appreciates that a new era has started. We should be living lives that are aligned with King Jesus, pleasing Him, honouring Him, knowing that He might be back tomorrow, or He might not be, but we wait living lives that please the King of this new regime. I'm going to pray that we'd be doing that as a church and as a people as we wait for Jesus to return. Father God, we thank you for this passage in Mark, which gives us some indication about what we're to expect. And although, at least for me, some of this is a little bit confusing, we know with great confidence that your son Jesus died and was raised and ascended to heaven. We know with confidence that Jerusalem was destroyed and not one stone of the temple was standing on another. And so we have great confidence knowing that you, in the person of Jesus, will return and that you'll put the world right. We ask that in the meantime, through your spirit, you would give us what we need to be Jesus' ambassadors and to live lives that please you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, Carl, for speaking.